Great. Good morning, Arcadia. How you doing? Great to see you this morning. Uh, pretty exciting day. Massey is in day. David Massey is in day one of his marriage, and uh, so, uh, Lydia contacted me right after the reception for postmarital counseling. So that's. Pretty exciting. Anyway, the uh, other thing, happy Mother's Day, and today is a special day. We're going to be dedicating 14 babies today, not, in this, not just in this service. We have, we have several more in the second service, but we have five in this service, so if uh, everybody would come up and we'll start working our way through the pictures and everything, and we'll dedicate you guys. It's awesome. <clears throat> Nobody brought their carriers up. Oh, well... They have carriers, but the ones with the handles. So that's really good. <laughs> All right, we're, um, I guess we'll go in the order of the pictures. How's that? Yeah, okay. So we're starting with Britton right here. Britton Fletcher. Uh, we were actually having dinner with uh, Dean and Sarah the evening that this all happened. So it was kind of cool. We were at the Biltmore and... She's like, I think I'm going to the hospital after this. Okay, cool. <laughs> That's really good. All right, next one. Uh, there's Naomi Bear. That's pretty exciting, huh? Yeah, we have family in from out of town for, for them. I, anybody else have family in from out of town? You guys do too? Awesome. All right, so uh, Aaron and Maria. And then the next one. Here are the twins, Arden and Franklin. Over here, Tim and Amber Stobel. So a boy and a girl. They're already fighting. So, uh, Tim and Amber, I mean, not. <laughs> and then the last is Levi Hansen. So Mark and Keeley's, yeah. So uh, Mark's my Saturday morning running partner, so he's already got Levi thrown around. What are those things called? The kettle weights? Or is that? Yeah, so I'm trying to introduce him to kettle corn, and they're trying to get him to do kettle wait. So anyway, so this is our first service uh, gaggle. So here we go. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, O Lord, our Sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. Know that the Lord is God, that he is the one who made us and that we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. So today we rejoice with all of these parents here in the gifts of these children right here, which is awesome. We give thanks to God, the giver of life and the source of all blessing. Because Jesus invites the children to come to him, we bring all of these babies to our Savior, praying for his blessing as a sign of the kingdom of God. As parents, you have offered your children to the strong and tender providence of God and to the nurture of the church. We also, as members of this congregation, promise to share in your child's nurture, and we want to support your efforts in providing a loving and caring home. Our prayers are with you as you embark on this endeavor. Let us hear from the gospel concerning Jesus and children. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant, and he said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone 
who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and he put hands on them and he blessed them. So as parents, by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are called to provide for your children to meet their physical needs, to create a home of shelter and safety for your children to grow and to flourish in, to model for your children a life that is lived for the Lord, to teach your children who they are and who God is according to his word, and to teach them about God's love, faithfulness, and redemption. And so I ask you, parents, now, will you, by God's help, dedicate yourselves to the Christian nurture of your children, bring them up in the worship and teaching of the church, that they may come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and follow him, if so, answer by saying we will. Okay? And you guys are involved in this too. The congregation of Redemption Arcadia, will you, as members of the body of Christ, dedicate yourselves to be faithful to your calling as members of the body, so that these children and all other children among us may grow in the knowledge and love of, our, of Christ our Lord and Savior, if so, answer by saying we will. And so, little babies, because Jesus said, let the children come to me, for such belongs the kingdom of God, we present you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace, not just today, but forever. Let me pray a blessing on these parents and on these children at this time. Let me just go ahead and put my hands around the bears here. Lord God, we thank you for the blessing of new life, both uh, born new life and reborn new life. God, we're thankful for who you are. Thankful for your son and what he's done for us, a sacrifice for us that we get to talk about now in just a minute. We're thankful for your Holy Spirit who fills us and guides us and directs us. We're thankful for your word and its truth. And God, I just pray your blessing on these parents and on these children. I pray for uh, peace and hope during the tough times and the sleepless nights. And I also pray that um, their joy would be great during the wonderful times. God, equip them, strengthen them, and give them your hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in peace, you guys. <laughs>
uh, verses 1 through 7. There's a lot here, and, and really, if you look at next week, which is just one verse, chapter 8, uh, we're sort of building a foundation today uh, for what is going to be talked about next week from verse 8, because verse 8 really goes with the seven verses before it, in particular, the, the four verses, especially before verse 8. And I just want to remind you of the, of, the, of the context that we're in. Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, but Timothy is going to read this letter, or he has read this letter, out loud to all of the churches in Crete. So um, by proxy, he's also writing the entire church, so the church knows what's going on as well. And, and uh, the title of this entire series is Doctrine Matters, and so obviously within this uh, letter that, that Paul writes to Titus, uh, there's, a, there's a large emphasis on, on sound doctrine. He uses this, this little idiom, sound doctrine, several times throughout uh, the letter, and that word sound, as we've been saying, is the Greek word hygiano, from which we get the word hygiene. So it's, it's a healthy doctrine, is what he's really driving at, that we are to present and teach and insist upon, he says, insist upon this healthy doctrine for people to be able to grow in Christ. And, and in the midst of that, we are to rebuke any sort of false teaching or false teachers. We're to, we're to correct them and rebuke them and, and to stop them from teaching anything that is counter to the gospel. And believe me, there's lots of false gospels out there. There's lots of things that are presented as good news, but aren't really the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, they're, they're packaged well, but they don't contain the power and the truth and the grace of the true gospel. So we have to confront false teachers, but uh, we do that uh, because we're strengthened by the fact that grace has appeared, literally grace epiphanied when Jesus Christ, the incarnation of God, came, and that's what gives us the power to be able to do this. It is his Holy Spirit who fills us, and then we are to be trained in lives of godliness and righteousness, and this is how it is done. We, we don't train ourselves with a moral code, but rather we train ourselves by the power of the indwelling of the Spirit, the resurrected Christ, and the grace that he gives us. Grace is not just for salvation, but it is what powers us and empowers us and strengthens us also for sanctification, to be conformed to the image of God's Son, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8. So now this passage in particular gives us a very clear and compelling contrast. Paul is contrasting two different types of people here, the only two people that there really are in the world. Uh, on one hand, there's the person who does not submit their life to God or to the authorities that God has set into place and consequently lives a life of foolishness. You will see that word is actually in this text, and he uses that word throughout his other letters in the New Testament as well. And then on the other hand, we have the person who is saved by grace, not by merit, not by their works, not because they're a good person, but rather they are saved by grace, but by the loving and tender mercy of Jesus Christ. And consequently, because of that, they possess the wisdom and the power to live a life of humility and to pursue godliness and submission. And so with that as kind of the backdrop, here's our big idea for today that we get out of this text. Grace is power, submission is wisdom, and rebellion is foolishness. And, and right away, I just know that there are people in here, this is just grinding their gears right now. Because what we just presented up there is the big idea of this text, which is true, is also countercultural and counterintuitive. This is the opposite of every message that the world is trying to tell us. 
Rebellion is right. Question authority. Don't submit yourself to anybody but yourself. Only follow yourself. Yourself will never deceive you. <laughs> but yourself does deceive you. And Paul takes that, on, takes that on head on. So grace is power. Submission is wisdom. And rebellion is foolishness. So today what we're going to do is two things. We're, we're going to define some terms. At, at, at times it may feel a tad academic, but uh, the reason we're doing that is because there's tremendous application in understanding these terms a little bit more deeply. And then second of all, we're going to explain at the end two significant implications that this text has on our lives today, not just in Paul's day, but today as well. So let me reread the first three verses of chapter three, and we'll start with those. So Paul says, remind them. That's right there. We're going we're gonna to park on remind for a minute. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. There's that S word, submissive. To be obedient, to be ready for every good work. See the connection there between submission, obedience, and every good work. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. So right out of the gate, he uses the word remind, remind them. Two keys to this word. Number one, it is in the continuous present tense. So some of you English teachers are excited that we just did that for you. It's in the continuous present tense, which means... Remind them and keep reminding them always. Remind them every single day. Remind them every time you get a chance. Don't stop reminding them. You are to continuously remind them of this truth. And number two, we need to be reminded. What that tells us is that what Paul is presenting here is not new teaching. When he gets to this portion of the letter, you don't have a bunch of note takers in the churches at Crete going, oh, I need to pull out some paper. Here's some new stuff from Paul. No, he says, this is stuff that he's been teaching ever since he was converted, ever since Jesus saved him. He's been teaching this same stuff, which is what Jesus would teach. And the reason we need to be reminded constantly of these things is because anything that is understandably challenging and contrary to fallen nature, we have to hear over and over and over and over again. So here's maybe a picture of what we're trying to get at here. Uh, Paul says that the gospel is good for training in righteousness. And David, last week when he preached, he talked about how what we are good, absent of the gospel, is training ourselves in sin, in deception. So you're going to be trained in something, training in righteousness, training in God's word, training in the gospel, or you're, training in godliness, or you're going to be trained by sin. And, and both this training in righteousness... Both the gospel, in other words, and sin are like water. Have you ever noticed that water seeps? Those of you that have had leaks, it's, it, go, it seems to go... That's one of the most maddening things about water that's out of control. It seeps into all these places that you don't want it to go to. Well, training in righteousness and sin both seep as well. And so if you're, if you're focused on training in righteousness, if you're focused on the gospel, if you're looking and studying God's word, if you're getting to know Jesus, that's going to seep into all areas of your life. All of life is all for Jesus. But if you're focused on yourself, if you're focused on false teaching, if you're focused on false gospels, if you're focused on sin, that's going to seep too, and that's going to affect every single part of your life as well. And so then, right out of that, out of the reminder, he says, Submit to rulers and authorities. Well, which rulers and authorities is he talking about? Clearly, he's talking about the 
governing rulers and authorities. I love the timing of this passage with the election going on right now. I think it's just fantastic, okay? Here you go. This is tough stuff for some of us, I know. Christians who are out of submission to the government bring disrepute to the gospel and are out of submission to God. That's what the gospel teaches us. That's what the gospel teaches us. So, Right away, you're going to say, all right, where are the loopholes? Where are the exceptions? All right, I'll give them to you. Because there are a couple. Here they are. Here are the, here's the loophole. Here's the exception. By the way, there's only a few of them. There's not as many as you think there are. Okay, here you go. We are allowed to disobey the government when the government specifically commands something that God would prohibit. So right now, abortion is legal in our country. But it is not mandated. You are not required by the government to abort your baby. Some of you maybe think back to Exodus chapter 1 and the Hebrew midwives when Pharaoh made the declaration that any Jewish child that was born a male had to be killed by the Hebrew midwives and any uh, Jewish uh, child that was born a female, it was okay for her to live and the midwives disregarded that order because they feared God. So there's one of your uh, exceptions. When the government specifically commands something, that God prohibits, or when the government specifically prohibits something that God commands. And so I think we have an example of that in Acts chapter 4 with Peter and John. Uh, they were just sharing Jesus with people, and the, and the governing authorities then beat them for sharing the gospel. And they said, if you keep sharing Jesus and telling people about Jesus and making us look bad, we're going to continue to beat you. And what, did, what was their response? Their response was, we, are, we rejoice in our sufferings for Christ. We rejoice in our sufferings for Christ. We're going to keep preaching the gospel because we rejoice in our sufferings uh, for Christ. But, but here's what I want you to notice. The Hebrew midwives, if they were caught letting uh, a boy live, uh, the, the Egyptian government would take the Hebrew midwives' life. So they would replace that life. So here's what I want, and James, uh, John and Peter were beaten. So here's what I want to get at, okay? Not only do we feel like we want to rebel against whatever the government says that we don't especially like or agree with, but we also, this is what I found in the church. This is what I found in evangelicalism. We also don't want any of the consequences. So we rebel, which the gospel calls us not to do, and then we whine when we have consequences. Find any of that in Scripture for me. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, don't be surprised at the fiery trial. Jesus says if they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. I know, this is really hard stuff. It's quiet and somber in here right now. Which is exactly the effect I was going for because this is serious stuff. Especially now, during this election season. Um, how many of you have read the, uh, the letter from Birmingham jail that Martin Luther King Jr. wrote? Many of you have read that letter. Did you hear him whining about being in prison? No. He said, I'm, I'm fine here. I will do anything for the cause of Christ and for justice. And I'm fine if they, wanna, if they want to discipline me. So the exceptions, now let me make sure you understand, they're not very often. We think they're rampant, but they're not very often. In Scripture, there's only three. There's the Hebrew midwives from Exodus chapter 1. In Daniel chapter 3, there's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, Daniel's boys, 
when they say, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, we're not going to bow down to you, even though we know you're going to throw us into the fiery furnace. And what did they say in verses 17 and 18? I love that. They say, you know, our God is able to save us, but what's the next line? But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down to you. We're, we're willing. We are fine with the consequences. And so into the furnace they went. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar heated it up seven times hotter. He was so mad at them. Which at that point, he's just doing them a favor because it's over quicker. But then they survived anyway. It's a wild story. You should read it sometime. And then Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John did what they did. Now, listen, I'm just going to confess to you right here. I am really, really cynical already of both Republicans and Democrats who, who say that they're followers of Christ, who like to use the guise of Jesus and or Christianity and or the church as a rationale to defy anything that the government is doing that they don't prefer or they don't agree with. And, and they're using it as a guise. And, and, and it's just, it's, it's not right. You, you, need, you need to first find out if it stands up to the scriptural test and the vast majority of the stuff that we're upset about doesn't stand up to the scriptural test. What if you live in Nazi Germany? You don't. That question, well, what if you're not, you're not in Nazi Germany? You're in America. Okay? Now, submission to the governing authorities, I want you to understand. You think, oh, this is so hard for me. Hey, this letter was written to a church where there were a lot of Jewish people in the church who hated the Romans, hated the Roman occupation, hated the Roman government, thought that the Messiah was going to come and liberate them from Rome, that that was the job of the Messiah. The reason that Paul is writing this, many scholars uh, surmise, is that this was part of the false teaching that was going on in the church at Crete. That there were people riling up the Jewish Christians saying, we need to rebel against the Roman government. And Paul is saying, no, no. What was it Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 5 when he was for certain talking about the Roman government and the Jews' relationship to them? The Roman government, a soldier in the Roman government, had every right to walk up to any citizen, including the Jewish citizens there, and ask them to pick up his stuff and carry it for a mile. And what did Jesus say to them? He said, don't just carry it one mile, carry it two miles. But, but the false teachers at Crete are probably teaching them, don't carry it at all. And, and Paul's saying, no, no, no. You'd not only submit, but go the extra mile. Go the extra mile. Now, some of you know you've sat through teaching like this before. There are essentially four spheres or four realms of authority that God has anointed and calls us to. So it would be government, it would be in the church, it would be in the family, and it would be in the workplace. All the places where we love to rebel. Amen? Right? Okay, here you go. The biblical teaching on these issues of submission is never about finding loopholes and exceptions, but always about how to live in submission with power, wisdom, and grace. So here's our mandate this morning. Stop looking for loopholes and exceptions and pray that the Holy Spirit would give us the grace to live in wisdom and power. That's our prayer. The gospel is power. Submission is wisdom. Rebellion is foolishness. Some of you right now are thinking, oh, thank you, Jesus, he's over, he's done with that. Nope. This is also a live wire issue for Americans, amen? Yeah, this bothers us, okay? I'm telling you, again, <clears throat> just in general conversation, I've never heard so many Christian people say of their political opponent right now, that if they win the presidency, I will refuse to acknowledge them as the president of the United States. I hear that everywhere, every single day. Lucy's the Henry, 
the lobby, it doesn't matter. I'm hearing it everywhere. Really? Is this the gospel approach that Jesus and Paul want us to have? Is that really it? Here, here you go. Let me ask you this question. <laughs> have we so easily forgotten that no matter who becomes the president of the United States, Jesus is king? Have we forgotten that? Now, listen, I'm not saying that this election isn't important. They're, they're all important, I guess. <laughs> but, but here, by the way, I'm voting for Josh Prather. I'm writing in Josh Prather. So but here's the deal, okay? Here, here's the deal. Uh, the president is not the Messiah, and he's not the Antichrist. He's neither, or she is neither one. Okay, so stop the emails, all right? <laughs> You know, Obama's the Antichrist. Well, oh, Hillary's the Antichrist. Uh, Bush is the Antichrist. Still Bush. Okay. All right. Okay, here you go. Um, I want you guys to understand, most of you are younger than me. I was alive for the presidencies of Nixon and Carter. Okay? Now, that should admit a laugh. <laughs> Not because of how old I am, but because of Nixon and Carter. Okay? All right, so here you go. I was alive for Nixon and Carter. I want you to understand... Other than being a little bit older and technology being better, my life, my life really isn't any different. So this importance that we're placing on the presidency, I mean, it just it boggles my mind. If we were this fervent about Jesus as we are about the presidential elections, what could the church do? What could the church do? So then in verse 2, Paul says, be gentle. Now, in this context here, here's what this Greek word means. It means do not insist on every right of letter and law. Do not insist on every right and letter of law. In other words, let me update the phraseology here, don't be a nitpicker. Because nitpickers, even nitpickers for Jesus are annoying. Have you ever noticed that? Nitpickers for Jesus are annoying. They're annoying politically. They're annoying in the church. They're annoying at home. They're annoying at work. Can I get an amen about the nitpickers? How many of you have a nitpicker in your life? <laughs> we need to be praying for the nitpickers in our life. And if you are the nitpicker in somebody else's life, if I'm the nitpicker, Jackie, in somebody else's life, what we need is a filter. And our filter is Jesus. Paul says, take every thought captive to Jesus Christ. Take every thought captive to Jesus before you verbalize it or get on social media. Here's the rule that Christians should be living by. Not every thought is worth verbalizing or putting on social media. Amen? Yeah. Think about it before you say it or get your fingers going. Okay? We got to embrace discernment, y'all. Count to 10. I've gotten to five. I'm getting better, okay? We've got to have discernment. Have the same mind in us that was in Christ Jesus. Otherwise, we bring disrepute to the gospel. By the way, you ever notice how Paul is both tough and tender in the midst of this? He's really tough, but he's also really tender. You know what? He calls us to the same thing. Well, that's hard. That's tension. Yeah. That's why we need grace. That's why grace can empower us. That's where the power is. Grace is power. We need to rebuke falsehoods, but we should never speak evil of anyone. 
We need to stand firm, but we need to do it with grace and honor. And he says, show perfect courtesy to all people. Uh, The great first century BC historian Cicero said this, or wrote this. Order and anarchy in smaller realms has implications for order and anarchy in the larger realm. So all the smaller realms in our lives, if there's order in those smaller realms, there's going to be order in the larger realms. If there's chaos in the smaller realms, there's going to be chaos in the larger realms. Now, this is interesting for many of us. Historically, Christianity has really often, more often, been one of the, one of the smaller realms. Historically, the church has been one of the smaller realms. It is more common that we do not enjoy the privilege of cultural power as we have in the past. In fact, I would would proclaim that the church is way more effective when we're small, humble, and persecuted. We're way more effective in that context. So our call as Christians, our call in the church, is to be steadfast, orderly, humble, and disciplined by the power of God's grace. Paul's saying, listen, as followers of Jesus... We are not to be the foundation and nexus of discord and antipathy, but rather in humility, we are to be the foundation and nexus of honor, respect, peacemaking, even when we are correcting false teaching. And you look at verse 3, you see the contrast between the wise person and the foolish person. He says, for we ourselves were once foolish. And then he goes on to show us how that foolishness was manifested. We were disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So there's this clear contrast here between wisdom, which is submission, and foolishness, which is the person who's mastered by their own passions and desires. So verse 3 looks back at our lives before grace appeared. We were foolish. In other words, we were ignorant in regard to spiritual matters, and therefore we were not submitted to the will of God, as Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 5. We were disobedient. We were disobedient of God and God-ordained authorities in our lives. We were led astray. Literally, we were self-deceived by our own myths and fantasies. And we were passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That sounds like a lot of fun, right? That's who we were before grace appeared and made us new creations. So notice again, again, I want you to notice this, the connection between submission and wisdom, and then submission and also being ready for good works. Submission and good works, there's a connection there. And the connection between not submitting and foolishness. So earlier, Paul talked about the false teachers who were intoxicated by their own deception and they were intoxicated by their desire to profiteer from their teaching and he says they're unfit for any good work. They're rebelling and therefore they are unfit for any good work. Those of you that want to do good works, it it, it comes out of submission by the power of grace in your lives. So if you're rebelling and you're unfit for any good work, you are what Paul calls a fool, what Proverbs would call a fool. Those in Christ, however, by virtue of their humble submission, are ready for every good work. It's a clear distinction, and it's a distinction that actually does make a difference. Why? Because a person who is in Christ and submits all things to Christ is one who's empowered by the Holy Spirit to show courtesy, to be gentle, and to be kind to other people. And then these last four verses, verses 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, that would be Jesus, 
Jesus saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So that goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. That literally, that word, uh, the loving kindness, is literally philoanthropos. Philo, love, anthropos, humanity. Philanthropy. God loves humanity. So here's what Paul's saying. He's saying that God is our true patron. We all want a patron in our life, at least one. Well, God is our true patron. He is our true benefactor. He's the one who provides, defends, and protects us. And, And it's it's quite a benefactor that we have in him considering it cost him the life of his son. That's a big deal. And then you look at verse 5. He says, we weren't saved by works, not even works that were done in righteousness. He, he's very specific about making sure that he includes that. So why do we keep talking about this? Why do we keep saying that good works done uh, that are outside of the purview of the gospel really aren't works that are, that are truly righteous? It's because human beings who are tainted by their sin, are bent in on themselves to the extent that no matter what we do, no matter what God has done for us, we just desire to make everything about us, no matter what. Even though it's God who has saved us, God's grace who has saved us, we still want it to be about us, even our good works. Look what I did. Look at me. I'm a good person. I can lift up myself. I can save myself. I'm saving myself. Uh, Thursday night, a bunch of us were with some ex cons, ex-prisoners in, in this sort of halfway house deal. We were having dinner with them and listening to testimonies, and there was one guy in there um, who had a, a drug addiction. He, he got started with pain meds and eventually moved to heroin and then moved to meth. And on three different occasions, he, had, he was able to um, stop uh, his drug addiction for two, three, maybe four months. And he always did it after somebody introduced him to Christ and, and talked to him about the gospel. But then after he was off the drugs for two, three, or four months, he said, I began to think that really it was me and my power and my strength that was doing it, and then that's when I would fall again. I'd fall right back into it. And now he's been clean for 18 months, and he's preaching the gospel because he knows that's where the power comes from. Grace is power, and submission is wisdom. You see, it's not us. Jesus, when he's on the cross, he says to the man on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. What did the guy on the cross do? Nothing. It's all Jesus. It's all Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson, wonderful Bible teacher, scholar, he says this, we can never separate the benefits of Christ from our union with Christ. We can never separate the benefits of Christ from our union with Christ. The benefits being salvation and sanctifying power and good works and deeds and, and righteousness and peace and hope. You can't separate them. A couple of illustrations maybe that might be helpful here. I, I know a lot of, a, of parents who have adopted children. And with the exception of uh, legal matters, specific legal matters, where they do have to show the papers of adoption, okay, uh, when, we're, when we're just out in social settings, wherever that might be, when they're introducing their adopted child they will, to somebody else, they will never dig into their purse, their briefcase, or their wallet and say, here are the adoption papers. They always say what? This is my son. This is my daughter. There is no separation there. 
That's what the gospel of Jesus Christ looks like. Here's another one. Uh, there was a kind of an interesting little sort of debate between Luther and Calvin about, about something about this, where Luther w- would say, uh, you know, look at the cross of Christ, and we're over here, and that's why we are justified and we can do what we do. And Calvin comes along and says, no, 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 no. You don't look at, we are crucified with Christ, Galatians says. We are on that cross with him. You cannot separate those who are in Christ from Christ. Paul uses that little Greek idiom 176 times in his letters. In Christ. We are in Christ. He doesn't use it because he's obsessive, compulsive. He's using it to try to get this point across to us. We are not separated in any way, shape, or form from Jesus. And in verse 6, he says, God has abundantly poured out his grace and mercy on us through Jesus Christ, our our Savior. And that's not on as in separated, but on as in with. That grace is being poured on us with Christ. And that word abundantly, some of your translations might have richly, it conjures up an image of a river that overflows its banks. It cannot be contained. God's grace just overflows, it just, it just flows out of us. You've heard Josh talk about how we are blessed to be a blessing, that we are given grace so that we can be gracious, that this stuff should just flow out of us. And it is he who regenerates us. That, that, that word regenerate is literally genesis again, or beginning again. We're reborn. It's genesis one and two again. It's, it's the picture of the garden again. We had one beginning when we were born. We're gonna, we have another beginning, as Jesus says, when we're born again in John chapter 3. In verse 7, let me reread that again. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Justified by his grace is not just in the forensic sense that now we're accepted into heaven by God, but that we are now seen right now as righteous, that there is an inner transformation that is happening and has happened in our lives. All of life is all for Jesus. It's Romans chapter 12. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. That word is metamorpheo. You are metamorphosed. I just made up a word, I understand, but you're getting the picture, right? Okay? There's a metamorphosis that has happened to you because you are now in Christ, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We're really different. I know some of you are like, I don't feel that different. But you are because it takes a while. It's, it's a journey. It's, it's right now, but also not quite yet. And this justification makes us heirs of a never-ending hope, the eternal hope. The fact that Jesus is coming again to usher in his kingdom, to to renew, to restore the world. Let me just read you a picture of that. In Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5, John writes this. This is our eternal hope right here. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. That, That the sea was no more is language that describes dark wickedness so there's no more dark wickedness and i saw the holy city the new jerusalem coming down out of heaven from god prepared as a bride adorned for her husband there's going to be a celebration and i heard a loud voice from the throne saying behold the dwelling place of god is with man he will dwell with them and they will be his people and god himself will be with them as their god he will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more 
Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. I'm making all things new. So here we were before Christ. We were led astray, literally led to death by our desires and passions that eventually destroy us. We were behaving foolishly. And Jesus comes along, gives us a new heart, and makes us a new creation, and we are new. Two implications. And I'll close with this. Two implications. First of all, in verses 4 through 7, I believe that Paul is explaining to us this is how we accomplish verses 1 and 2. This is how we do what I'm asking you to do in verses 1 and 2. It's verses 4 through 7, when our Savior had appeared. Okay? So, in verse 1, you see good works, and in verse 5, you also, he talks a little bit about works, and so we, we ask the question all the time. So, good works. We need to be doing good works, good deeds. How do we do good works? Essentially, in life, there are three ways that you can do good works. Three ways. Number one, you can be stirred by your emotions to do good works. Someone pushes our buttons and our heart is stirred. But you know what the problem is with that. Everybody knows. It's it's an emotional response and therefore it's fleeting. It's not sustainable. Because our emotions just can't do that all the time. It's like what uh, Tim Keller describes in his book on marriage as, as the true love phase of a marriage. Those of you that have been married longer than Six months, you know that eventually that wears off, right? And, and now suddenly, hard work needs to be embraced. We eventually have to do it even though we don't feel like it, and so most of us don't do it because we don't feel like it. Feelings are unsustainable. There's no sustaining power to be able to do what we're called to do. We know that inherently, but we get swept away anyway. So the second way we can do good works is by guilt or compulsion, we do something because we have to or are forced to in some way. I teach at Paradise Valley Community College and I have a syllabus that has required assignments on there. It's very rare that anybody's really excited about those required assignments. But they do them because I'm going to make them feel guilty if they don't or I'm going I'm to use compulsion to make them do it. It's in the syllabus. But notice how unexcited they are about it. And they always want to do just the bare minimum to get the points, right? Okay, how, how is there power in that? We know how fleeting this is too. People who act out of guilt or a compulsion, you know what they eventually do? They rebel. They rebel. And this is what's beautiful about grace because grace isn't about compulsion. It's about liberation. It's about freedom. We're not mandated to do good works, but we're empowered to joyfully engage God and others because of what's been done for us. And that's number three. We do good works because of grace, because of the gospel. We do good works because of our gratitude and joy for how much God loves us and what he's done for us and what he continues to do for us because of the cross and because of the eternal hope we have in Revelation 21 and 22. We we love others because he first loved us. We love him because he first loved us. This is verses four through seven. So good works, even those done in righteousness, as Paul say, do not save us or make us good people, but rather it's God's grace filling us with his Holy Spirit that empower us to do it. Grace is power, submission is wisdom, rebellion is foolishness. And now we begin to see the second implication, especially at this point in the letter of Titus. Paul always seems to use three metaphors to describe our salvation in Christ, and here they are. Number one, it's a journey. 
He, he, he talks about, Ecclesiastes also, uh, chapter 7 also talks about this. The end of something is better than the beginning. Finishing well is more important than getting a good start. Life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And it should be treated that way. Paul says that we're headed somewhere. There's a telos. There's a goal. We're headed somewhere. And he says, and Jesus says it too, it's hard, it's challenging, it's a marathon, but it's also eschatological. In other words, there is something that we're pointing to. It's that eternal hope of heaven, that eternal hope of the new Jerusalem, the restoration of all things. We're headed there to be with Jesus. God God never calls us (coughs) and then leaves us. He is a God of provision. He's a God of providence. That means to provide for the future. If he's called you, he's not going to leave you. He is going to take you. He's going to confront you, certainly. But he's also going to start the good work of conforming you to the image of his son. We're headed somewhere always. Paul says in Philippians 1, And I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. I heard this this week at the... um, uh, the pastor's collective, the preaching collective. Uh, Vince from Flagstaff, he says, you know, one of the problems in our culture today is that we overvalue the moment. Amen? We overvalue the moment. We're just just living for now. We We don't see what God has done and is doing for us and that this is a long journey and Paul sees it that way, Jesus sees it that way because that's what it is. After I heard that at the Preaching Collective, I then heard this from, from Cody's dad at a, at a conference, Tim Kimmel. He says this, Our problem today is that we always seem willing to sacrifice the permanent for the immediate. We always seem willing to sacrifice the permanent for the immediate. That is anti-gospel. Our salvation is a journey. Second of all, the metaphor he uses is growth. To grow. This is the transformation, the metamorpheo that we undergo in the gospel. Constantly growing. Think of all the agricultural uh, illustrations that Paul uses in his writing. Uh, Jesus uses agricultural illustrations in, in, his, in his sermons as well. Uh, read the Psalms. They're filled with these agricultural uh, illustrations of how we are growing with God. Romans 8 says that we are being conformed to the image of his son. We are being sanctified. So, journey and growth. By the way, I'm just trying to manage expectations here a little bit. (laughs) So many people want to come to church, get a 10-minute sermon, and think that that's going to fix their life. It's a journey, and it involves growth, okay? So come back next week, okay? All right? And then the third, the third metaphor is union. Again, Paul uses the idiom in Christ 176 times in his letters. Union. We are knit together with Jesus Christ. And the only way to be truly countercultural is to be united with Christ. That's the only way we can be truly countercultural. Jesus is our Lord. But the beauty of that statement is that he's the Lord that you and I have always wanted in our lives. The union and lordship of Jesus, by the way, is most passionately and beautifully expressed for us at the Lord's table in communion. Uh, Could we have the communion servers come forward? I want to talk just a little bit about the Lord's Supper. Go ahead and come forward now, and the band can start coming up now. You know, Jesus is at that 
last supper with his disciples, and he, and he takes essentially the Passover meal, and he turns it into the new covenant meal, the, the Lord's Supper meal. And he talks about this new covenant. He, he takes the bread, and he breaks it, and he says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he takes the cup of wine, and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. He's describing the covenant we have with Christ and what he's done for us. He also talks about how we need to do this in remembrance. We need to remember what Christ has done for us. So remember the covenant. There's a covenant that he has made with us that that we get to be the recipients of, and we're to remember that. That's very important. So remember the covenant. And then we do this in community as well. Sure, we take communion to people who are at home and can't get away, and and I understand that, but generally what we do is we gather corporately and we take this this meal together, the the Lord's Supper together as Christ followers, as members of his body of which he is the head. We do it as a communion, as a community. And then he calls us to reflection as well, and Paul calls us to reflection as well. We are to reflect on two things when it comes to the Lord's Supper. We are to reflect on our own sinfulness and, and, and how we can ask, we can invite Jesus into that sin. He's already forgiven it. We can invite him into it so that he can empower us to flee from it now. But also, we are to remember what Christ has done for us as well. So we reflect not only on the cross, but we also reflect on on how we can be closer to him so that the cross continues to make a difference in our lives. We're going to do that now as we respond. I'm going to pray, and then the servers are here. There's also elders and deacons and pastors here who can pray with you uh, if you need that as well while the band plays our last two songs. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth, and we thank you especially that grace has appeared in your son Jesus Christ and that you are constantly in the business of conforming us to the image of your son. We are so thankful for that. And so God, we just pray that we would continue to allow you to seep into every part of our lives. That your Holy Spirit would dwell in us, fill us up, and guide everything that we do. And remember that all of life is all for Jesus. Pray this in your son's name.